of Montreal's most exciting hotel, the Riot Hyatt, where all the comedians are lodging and there's 10 billion people everywhere you go and you can't walk two feet without tripping over someone you don't want to see. It's exciting to be back here. We're at the Jupiterra Just for Last Festival here in Montreal. Hooray! It's an afternoon show, and as you know, uh, afternoon shows are always fun for comedians because puppetry is one of the most important things we do besides comedy. Uh, hardly anything's funny in the daytime except watching a relative pass out during a, a holiday gathering, but we're going to try to make this as uh, lively as we can. Is anyone drinking here today? Hooray, that's the spirit. That's what I know I loved about Montreal. We're on the weekend here, and uh, I wasn't going to drink, but there was an entire bottle of vodka in my dressing room, and somehow it got loose. So I thought, fuck it, all I have to do tonight is Doug Benson's interruption. And uh, exactly, I'm going to be high for that anyway. So we might as well be half in the bag and get an A&W burger and push this bad motherfucker on. If you're listening out there in Poopcast land, this is an awesome time to light one up or lay one down or whatever it is you're doing. And of course, if you look, please take photography. There's no rules here. And if you're recording, record it on your phone. Who gives a shit? It's free. It's a free download. This isn't one of those big corporate events where like, please, everybody, stay in your corporate box and be revenue flow until the time has come for you to stand and be identified with a retina scan. Uh, I don't give a shit what you do, quite frankly, as long as you laugh occasionally and let me know that I'm not just speaking into a formless void. Uh, for those of you out there making tea, this is a groovy time to make some extra special tea that you might not have made before. Go sassafras today. Kick it in the ass. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and if you're, uh, if you're pouring yourself a cold one, wow. Why not do a shot with that? I think it really helps the cold one go down easier. And if you're looking after children, you know, let them free. <laughs> And please, whatever you do, take away their electronic devices from time to time. One thing children shouldn't have is an iPad in front of them every goddamn minute of the day to keep you from your parenting duties. When I was a child back in the 40s, um, we used to just daydream as the Japanese were bombing us. And we had all this free time on our own to do whatever we want and think about things and draw and color and junk like that and lay in the mud and whatever. I don't know. I see parents out with kids now and they hand them a video screen the minute they get anywhere to pacify them. And I think if I was little, I probably would have liked it. But then by the same token, uh, where, where, where would the kid be that dared you to pay him five cents to eat a caterpillar? Uh, there was so many things you could do. We could eat paste. We could put beans in our noses. Um, one time I, my mother left me alone for two seconds in the car and she said, don't do anything, right? So of course I pushed the lighter in, the cigarette lighter, and put it right to my lips and uh, burned the shit out of them. And then my dad left me alone once at the apartment that I lived in. I, I grew up in a Victor Hugo-like squabbler. And uh, yeah, uh, it was like Le Mis when I grew up. And, uh, but very sexy little hats and scarves and whatnot. And then we'd man the barricades and then they would come and the communards would all get together and we'd sing and whatever. And uh, Le Mis is a story about one of the French revolutions. And uh, in any case, uh, yeah, he left me alone. And I thought, you know what? I could really go for some ice. And in those days, freezers frosted over. So there was loads of frost on the freezer. But rather than scoop the ice out with my hand, I decided to put my mouth right on it. Now, I don't know if you've ever put your mouth on ice before, but you're not released by ice. Ice is a, ice is a very demanding lover. And it, it wants you there right now. And it never lets you go. And it adheres to your skin. And you can't get away. So I had to rip my lips off the freezer. And they were, yeah, I couldn't kiss anyone for weeks and weeks and weeks. Of course, I was seven, so it really didn't matter. There wasn't a lot of Frenching going around in first grade when I grew up and shit like that. So we're here in Montreal, and it's so exciting. Uh, a lot of the American comics become disoriented and confused here because they can't believe when they walk into a building, it says T-Ray, but then when you walk out of the building, it says Pousset. Because at home, there's never Pousset when you leave a building. It's almost always on the way in. And then everyone says bonjour here, of course, because they have to. It's a French-speaking province, or rather more precisely, a Quebecois-speaking province, which is a, some ancient form of French that's hitherto unknown and that the people of France look down their nose at. But then the people of France look down their nose at basically everything, don't they? So they would look down at their colonials. They're only jealous because you have syrup. The Arab raises some kind of dander in them. I saw Celine Dion on TV once in Paris, and uh, they were interviewing her, and of course she was the biggest star in the world. And every time she spoke in Quebecois, they were like, mm, really? Honestly, I'm like, well, who do you have that's a bigger star that speaks fucking French, okay? You can't crack Johnny Holiday out every goddamn two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so lovely here in Montreal. There's the uh, Notre Dame uh, Cathedral and the Vucare, and uh, uh, people say bonjour to you when you walk in. And as we discussed on the Parisian episode, the, way, the key to French, if you don't speak it, and I don't, I don't even speak in petit peu, I speak like no fucking peu whatsoever. 
uh, is to sing. And uh, then you're off the hook no matter what happens. If someone says, bonjour, you go, bonjour, like that. And then they go, come on, Savannah, you go, Savannah, like that, and that's it. It's over. There's no more responsibility after that. You can switch right into English because everyone speaks both languages here. You're not in the farthest reaches of Quebec. We're not at the top of the fucking province where people are eating corn and beating each other all day and waiting for the snow to clear so they can beat each other in the sunshine. Uh, it's a very festive time here in Montreal because the sun is shining and so everyone's wearing shorts and exposing their feet which is revolting to me but there you are uh, and there's lots of cute women here and uh, extra creepy guys and um, then you see everybody wearing shorts and every, no one's been out all winter time and uh, so there's some thighs here that are blinding let's put it that way it's like a double wide uh, IMAX movie in the Antarctic the Antarctic is a region of the Earth that's largely covered by snow. Ergo, it would be white and therefore blinding to you when you looked at it. I'll be explaining every joke I do here today. There's nothing like doing comedy for a crowd where English is everyone's second language, really. I'm joking, of course. I don't use nuance anyway, so there won't be any fucking subtlety at all. Take song. Hmm. I received lo several lovely guests here today. A man named Paul gave me a book called Up, Up, and Away. It's about the Montreal Expos and the crazy business of baseball. Uh, I always rue uh, the day that the Montreal Expos moved to Washington because, again, that was Bud Selig, the uh, lipless uh, senator that is in. She's not a senator, but I wanted to call him that. The lipless man is the commissioner of baseball, and uh, he has a, a heart made of blackened fucking charcoal. Uh, and that's why he moved Montreal from here. Although, I don't remember when I went to any Montreal Expos games, any other Canadians being there. It was like me and nobody and fucking Yuppie running around the stands. I did like ordering hot dogs there, though. Shinsho, Shinsho. Je voudrais du autre here, is what I would say. Welcome to the show. Come in. Don't be shy. Hi, Alonzo. Alonzo Bowden is here, ladies and gentlemen. Magnificent comedian. Wonderful human being. Alonzo, are you still doing shows here? Yeah. Well, you got one tonight? Tonight, I am at uh, Club Soda at 7 on the All-Star Show. Awesome. Uh, you have to see Alonzo. He's at 7.30 at the Club Soda. Place de Lazare, you say, for the other one? Uh, yeah. Yeah, his take on current events is amazing. Uh, I, you may remember, or uh, keen-eared listeners will remember that I read the tweet about him when Donald Sterling, uh, the shit hit the fan with the L.A. Clippers. I read Alonzo's quote on the air because it was the most cogent thing uh, that anyone had said about the entire uh, tawdry affair and the affairs of all rich white people that own fucking sporting teams that rip at the heart of the very children that adore them and stuff like that. But it's a little early for the boring preachy part but let's talk about the gifts we got so far a, a couple here named uh, Sonia and Ken gave me these lovely books here An Inconvenient The Inconvenient Indian A Curious Account of Native People in North America by Thomas King this says national bestseller um, don't doesn't every cover of every book say national bestseller would there ever be a cover of a book that said disappointingly low sales both regionally and globally we invite you to make the same mistake only a few people have made so far. And spend a couple of clams on this. Uh, let me just read the synopsis here. I haven't actually read it at all because I just got it a few moments ago. Uh, fascinating, off oh, this is a review by someone else. Uh, uh, fascinating, often hilarious, always devastatingly truthful. Wow, that's a fucking tall order, man. Often hilarious and always devastatingly truthful. I don't know anything that's always devastatingly truthful. I mean, the Bible is often hilarious. <laughs> But it's rarely devastatingly truthful. Unless you like flaying and uh, sodomy and things like that. In which case, the Bible is a fantastic guidebook. Uh, particularly the Old Testament. If you're into revenge, god damn it. Never mind the mafia. The Bible fucking gets it done. Take that, Philistine. Uh, I have no idea what this book is about. It is one of Canada's premier public uh, intellectuals. He is the best-selling author of five novels. I don't know why I'm giving Thomas King all this time on the show. Uh, I assume it's an account of the Native Americans. Is it a novelization, Ken, Sonia? Kind of a quasi-history. I love quasi-history. That's exactly what I deal in here. Because I make shit up that has no pertinence to anything else. <laughs> Speaking of quasi-history, I was reading about Cartier last night. And Cartier got an enormous bounty from King Francis I to come over here. Because he was born uh, the year before Columbus sailed. And so, 30 years later, uh, Cartier was in France kicking around. And they were like, you know, we got to open up the New World. There's a whole big punch of the New World that hasn't been exploited yet. And there's loads of uh, people over there that we can enslave and take away their shit. Uh, and uh, we understand there's a northern continent that's just full of beaver. 
And uh, we'd like to send some French people over there to make love to the Indians and bring back every pelt till the end of time. And then, of course, help us in an unsuccessful war against the British, which will leave us annexed into one small province eventually, 200 years down the line. In any case, he met with the Iroquois here, and then uh, he established a little colony, and then he fucked off back to fucking France and left everyone here to die. So uh, he wasn't quite the glorious explorer that I thought he was going to be. However, I will say this about the French explorers. They had the best outfits. There's no fucking question of that. The Spanish ones have the little helmets and the cuirasses, right, and the breastplates and the the pikes and the halberds and whatnot. The English, of course, came over a hundred years after with those hideous hats with the buckles on their heads, and it's just nonsense what the English fucking wore. Really gross, and they never bathed, and everyone was named, you know, Providence and Prudence and shit like that, and horrible, almost fucking Amish names. Just hideous, like flee from fornication as a name and shit. You know what I mean? They really, no Falatio or name, you know, that's, that's what they were named. The Puritans were a miserable group of cocksuckers and that's why America's in the fucking state it's in because we had these fat group of lumpy fucking Puritans come over and establish the goddamn place and as I've always said, how come we couldn't get the Italian party vessel? God damn it, Italy. What was going on? Why did you have to be a million city-states during the Renaissance? Couldn't you have fucking pushed a boat over here so we could have had a cappuccino maker and a gelato machine instead of the squalid, fat, bandy-legged Saxons we got to come over with fucking guns and Bibles and no fucking farming implements? Then you wonder why there's open carry all over the goddamn United States with fat fucking people walking into an Arby's with a backward baseball hat on and an M16 across their shoulder going, I'm exercising my rights! Certainly the sentiment for the extinguishment of the legal Indian had been around for a while. There's a promising sentence. (laughs) If there's one thing that's important, it's the legal extinguishment of races. Ah. When do we uh, get a bill passed that the legal extinguishment of show business? That'll be a great day. I also received another book here uh, from uh, Sonia and Ken called uh, Ava Gardner, The Secret Conversations. Ava Gardner... Uh, was what we call a bombshell. Uh, she was an actress in the 40s. She was discovered she was running around barefoot in North Carolina, uh, living in a, in a very rural town. Indeed, there's an Ava Gardner Museum. If I've mentioned this before on the show, fuck you, the show's free. Um, <laughs> there's an Ava Gardner Museum in the middle of goddamn nowhere in North Carolina, and uh, you can go there, and it's a bunch of her outfits from different pictures, like... Uh, uh, what's the one where she's in Africa with Clark Gable? Um, Mogambo. Mogambo, thank you very much. And uh, there's, uh, uh, you know, different gowns. And later she was on Dynasty, was it, at the end? I think she did one of those nighttime, uh, long-time soap operas and shit like that. And uh, her hairbrush and her compact and a very intimate stuff. A whole film about her. She married Frank Sinatra. She married Mickey Rooney. She married Artie Shaw, the intellectual band leader. Uh, Artie Shaw led a big band uh, all through the 30s and 40s and 50s. And then he fucked off and started writing books. And uh, he married uh, Ava Gardner because she was... uh, Hot doesn't begin to describe Ava Gardner. She would make the Pope rob a convenience store. (laughs) That's how fucking hot Ava Gardner was. I don't know if you've been to Planet Poonanny, but she is the fucking empress of that planet. Uh, This is a picture of her in her her, her, uh, fishnet stockings here. Her first great movie was The Killer... The Killers? Killers? Can't remember with Burt Lancaster... Uh, she was discovered as a teen and when she married Artie Shaw she said she'd never read a book in her life and he gave her Jean-Paul Sartre and shit like that <laughs> yeah so she was thrown in the deep end the first person she married was Mickey Rooney who uh, God rest his soul passed away this year at the age of 255 uh, <laughs> Mickey Rooney invented performing <laughs> That's how far back Mickey Rooney goes. Uh, and he was uh, a short but uh, unbelievably licentious. And he had, I think, eight wives as well. Uh, in any case, mm. I bought a Snows of Kilimanjaro Christmas ornament that we hang on our tree every year uh, from the Ava Gardner Museum. Is this going to get funny or interesting at any point? Yeah, if you knew what fucking motion picture history was like, this would be interesting to you right now, you cinematic, illiterate fucking Quebecers. <laughs> Watch Jesus of Montreal and all the films of Adam McGowan, and then let's meet again when you understand how much this means to you. You can go as quiet as you like. I'm going to sit here for just a few moments and let you ruminate on the lack of your knowledge in the face of the breadth of scope of my fucking majesty. Oh, you think I'm not gonna? I'm fucking gonna. Oh, I fucking play. Someone say stop. Yep, there we go. Uh, let's see here. Uh, th- he's, she's being interviewed, you see, by a gay man, and that's the whole book. Uh, I married Mickey Rooney, exclamation point. Ooh. 
hate exclamation points. I'm going to cross that out there. <laughs> then I did it all the time. I think we know what did it means. I've been holding back a lot of emotions, honey. We screwed each other silly for the whole year we were married. We did it for a bit longer than that. Actually, I was making up for lost time. We screwed on and off right up to the time he went into the army in 44. Shit, we made love the night he enlisted. We had dinner at the Palladium for old time's sake, and then we, she hesitated, and I sensed what was coming. I'm not sure we should say that in the book, honey, she said. Say what? I said innocently. I'm going re to reread that since the stage direction was after. Say what? I said innocently. That Nick and I screwed all the time. You were married, for God's sake. We were separated. We were getting a divorce. It didn't stop us doing it. It makes me sound like a nympho, doesn't it? Doing it when we're in the middle of a divorce, she said. No, I said. You don't think it makes me sound like a goddamn nympho, she persisted. It's the kind of thing readers want to know, Ava. Is it, she said. It's a great insight, I said. <laughs> Peter Evans is the one who transcribed this. I don't know if it's a great insight, but we all certainly want to have that vision in our mind. Although, I would rather prefer to think her, of her uh, with someone else besides Mickey Rooney. He was much shorter than hers. So to me, it's like thinking about the Smurfs getting at it with regular tall people. Anyway, thank you very much for that book. And thank you for your sporadic laughter. You're a very, very respectful crowd. You honor everything I say with a moment of silence. Here's a gift I received. Young man, who gave me the satchel page? Uh, I can't see. I took my glasses off. Oh, there you are. What's your name? Paul. Oh, Paul. But a different Paul. Yeah. Two Pauls. Many Pauls. Oh, it's Montreal. It's Montreal. Where? Plus de Paul. Beaucoup de Paul. Plus de Marie. Plus de Jean-Francois. Comment ça va? Bien. Uh, he gave me a Satchel Page baseball card. Thank you very much for that. As you know, Satchel Page is the unofficial mascot of the show, aside from Chaton uh, McTavish. Uh, what is this? A score commemorative baseball card of Satchel Page. It says All-Star Game Bob Feller, Bob Feller versus Satchel Page. Satchel Page barnstormed with Bob Feller, uh, who was known, his nickname was Rapid Robert. Bob Feller uh, could throw the ball 100 miles an hour. This is in the 30s when he was a teenager. And he was uh, scouted off the fields in Iowa. And he uh, came from a town where there were no black people. I don't think he ever met a black person, right? Then he got to the major leagues and he started barnstorming with Satchel Page because they could make more money doing that than they were paid by major league owners. Kel fucking surprise. <laughs> was it ever thus with the owners? However, Bob Feller was not known for his love of black people. Uh, albeit he employed them and he worked with them uh, for a long time and Satchel Page didn't mind him. I believe he liked uh, Dizzy Dean better because Dizzy Dean didn't give a shit when he barnstormed with Dean. But Feller came afterwards. And uh, Feller said that he grew up throwing rocks at black people, except he didn't use the word black people. And uh, Satchel Page countered with, really? I grew up throwing rocks at, wi at white people. Uh, in any case, uh, uh, his name was Rapid Robert, and also he had other names. He, he was from Van Meter, Iowa, and actually was such a high school star that after his first year in the big leagues, went back and graduated. Imagine coming back to your high school after you've pitched a year in the major leagues. Do you think you might get any pussy? <laughs> No one says no to a major league fucking 17-year-old. Satchel Page, however, misremembered everyone's name willfully, uh, a custom I have uh, carried on through the years by mispronouncing everyone's name that I could possibly run across. Satchel Page called Bob Feller Bob Rapid for the entirety of his career, uh, which I adore. And uh, let's see here. What does it say? No one knows exactly when Satchel Page was born. No one is sure exactly when Satchel Page was born. He said his mother kept it in a Bible, uh, Page's mother, uh, Lulu Page. Uh, no matter what is certain is that he was one of the greatest pitchers who ever lived. He absolutely was. And thank you very much for that. And we should start the show, really, at some point. Let's do it now. Uh, I've had a wonderful week here. Uh, I've, I've been eating smoked meat until... Uh, I've experienced the cholesterolis, cholesterolis, cholesterolis. I've experienced the hallucination <laughs> induced by cholesterol uh, that my lower intestine is completely impacted and cannot pass anything until the end of time. Smoked meat is the most delicious thing you'll ever have. It's a Hebraic uh, treat here that they have in Montreal. That's the other thing I like about this city. There's Jews everywhere, so it reminds me of L.A. and New York. You go to Indiana and you're like, oh. <laughs> Can I get a bagel? Bagel? 
We don't serve people with horns and tails here. Did I say Indiana? I meant Saskatchewan. The point is this. Well, you're here. Welcome to the show. Uh, the, uh, uh, there's uh, Schwartz's, which is the most famous smoked meat place in Montreal. But uh, I was playing at the Wiggle Room on Saint Laurent uh, the entire week. And we were next to uh, the main deli and steakhouse. And I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I think the main deli and steakhouse has superior smoked meat sandwiches to Schwartz's. Thank you. I was hanging at someone went, boo. Yeah, whatever. Or I don't even know if that was booing. It might have been French, and they were just going, ooh. <laughs> I was uh, loitering out in front of uh, the, the main uh, deli and steakhouse, and uh, Nick, the manager, came out and, uh, and made me take a picture with him in front. Uh, well, he, he asked if I take him. He didn't make... No one can, ma- no one can make you take a picture. Stand there like a daguerreotype. He put my head in a rack, and I sat like this with my derby in my hand. Don't move for five minutes. Like Butch Cassidy. Uh, no, he, I took a picture with him in front, and then he gave me a smoked meat sandwich. Uh, but I'm get a, I get ahead of myself. Uh, I got here, and I was quite anxious, I have to say. I've been to this festival 122 times. I've been coming since 1994. And uh, I've come up here in every configuration. What do you mean by that, Greg? How could you come in different configurations? Well, one, uh, I've come up on my own and done stand-up, and then the gala and whatnot. I hosted the New Faces Festival 20 years ago. I wasn't a new face 20 years ago. I hosted the New Faces Festival 20 years ago, and I opened with, I'm very old to be here. Now, je m'appelle Gregoire, je suis ancien to be here. Now, 20 years later, I'm uh, not asked to host the New Faces Festival. I'm asked to sweep up after the New Faces Festival. Uh, in any case, uh, I've come up with Drew Carey. We did a Who's Line Here for years. I've come up with Ryan Stiles. We did a two-hander. I've been up on my own and did the podcast a couple years ago in a much less elegant room than this. This is a, a beautiful antiseptic corporate room with recessed lighting and horrible fluorescent shit where everyone can see each other and therefore everyone's uncomfortable to laugh. The last place I did was an inconceivable shithole in a junkie neighborhood that was really cool that had graffiti on the walls. And I said to the guy who was recording the show, are you going to be able to record this? And he was like, meh. <laughs> Because he didn't speak English at all, uh, which made it quite exciting. Um, uh, the, the, the first day I got here, I was flipped out. I'm like, oh, fuck, I can't believe I'm back here again. What am I going to do? I'm going to have a heart attack. Because, as you know, and I, I saw Mark Maron downstairs. Mark Maron has a, you know, a semi-popular podcast. And uh, it, it, it's with the Illuminati. It's kind of a, it's not for everyone. Um, and uh, it's for his cats. And, you know, they, 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 anyway, I, I've known Mark for uh, uh, 25 million years. And uh, we, ever since the earth was covered with frost. And... Uh, we saw each other downstairs, and I said, how's it going? He went, good. And he was like, uh, we're covering up our insecurity and our uh, unbelievable gaping hole where, uh, the, you know, where we should have human emotions, but we actually need the approbation and approval of strangers every 15 to 30 seconds to uh, give us the love that our parents didn't uh, provide us. But we're able to cover it with bondage uh, and verbiage and persiflage. And I, I, I could do nothing but concur uh, and then walk away bitterly. Uh-huh. So I was anxious, and I had, I think, a minor anxiety attack. What is an anxiety attack like? Is it a whooshing noise when you lay in your hotel room and think that you're the unfathomable piece of shit at the bottom of the ocean that the fucking illuminated fish with the weird uh, luminous eyes and other thing skip over and don't eat? Uh, And uh, I called my wife, and she said, Hey, people are down. How about giving them a lift instead of wallowing in your own fucking mire? And I was like, Fuck, that's why I hate you and love you. Because you speak truth to me, and I don't need that. What I need is a reaffirmation of my own insignificance. Uh, So I I showed up at the gig, and it was the Wiggle Room, and Jeremy Heckman uh, runs the Wiggle Room, and I I urge you to go and visit it. It's a fabulous place. It's on Saint Laurent, directly across the street from Schwartz's, directly next door to the main Deli and Steakhouse, and it's a burlesque place. So it has cocktails. And uh, everyone who works there is uh, really cool and fun and uh, a really beautiful atmosphere upstairs and whatnot. Little uh, uh, reclining, a fainting couch, I believe they call it, in the window. And you can lie in the fainting couch and have a picture of yourself taken with the short sign in the background <laughs> that says Barbecue Hebraic. Because there's nothing people like more than Jewish barbecue. <laughs> when weren't the Jews known for their fucking barbecue? It's finger-licking good. Why don't you use a napkin, you pig? I can't believe you're licking your hands at the table. 
you can go to North Carolina, Texas, Tennessee, whatnot. It's all barbecue all the time. Come to Montreal. Hey, it's will have some barbecue. Well, Essen, Essen, and then we'll schwitz after. I'm speaking in a language called Yiddish. In any case, uh, the first night we played, and uh, it, was, it was great fun. And then all my fears were alleviated. We were... Uh, we got high, and we, we drank, and we did the show, and a lot of people were there uh, in the room. And when I mean a lot, I mean like 70, because that's all it holds. It's a very intimate room, and uh, uh, someone said, the room fits you. And I thought, good for that, uh, because uh, I've played a million gigs up here in Montreal, and you play some real anodyne corporate places where people come and just stare at you. And, you know, I'm up there talking politics or talking some bullshit smack, and the whole French crowd would be like, what is wrong? The world is très belle. You know, you're like, what is your problem, uh, unhappy buddy Holly? from the coast of California. <laughs> you fucking lasse, your own bon temps brulee. I'll live in my own world of horrible. In any case, uh, uh, this is the difference between Montreal and any other festival that you go to or any other place. I did breakfast TV on C- uh, TV, right? And uh, first of all, the studio is located. Hi, you guys. Welcome. Uh, people come in late. Uh, most TV studios are located uh, uh, in a, a, a like sort of a you know a prison camp in Romania kind of atmosphere where you're you know there's like horrible hallways and everything's terrible and the doors fold backwards and then there's always someone cooking in the corner. Every breakfast show you'll ever go on, there's the smell of something you don't want to eat at 7:15 in the morning. Like we're making sauerkraut with pierogi or whatever, or we're we're making lobster thermidor and you're like oh shit I'm so hungover. This is making me sick. I couldn't get down a fucking saltine at this point. If you had a dwarf pry my jaws open and cram it down my throat. So I was pretty goddamn hungover, it has to be said. You know you're hungover when there's sweat running down behind your ears, which is so attractive on telly. And uh, the woman uh, who was in, uh, Joanne on CTV here, uh, says, showed a clip of me doing a political set from several years ago. And her first question, if you do American Breakfast TV, it's always like this. They show a clip of Who's Line that has Wayne doing something funny. And then they go, you'll remember him from a TV show called... Remember, it's still on the fucking air. You'll remember him from when he was popular some hundred years ago. Right after the Civil War, he performed at Lincoln's funeral and Andrew Johnson's inauguration. He's known as the bespectacled badger of wit. Please welcome Greg Proops. And then they turn and they go, how are you this morning, Greg? And I'll always go, great. Uh, As Lenny Bruce said, I love getting up 14 hours before I go to work. And they'll go like... Lenny Bruce, he's not on YouTube. And then the next question is, uh, do you guys really improvise that show? And my answer is always, no. We had over 45 writers who wrote every goddamn joke. Colin Mockery's never thought of anything original in his entire life. He's been handed every goddamn line. And Wayne's a cyborg sent from another world to make us feel shitty about how little energy we have. I don't even know Ryan. And then they get mad at me. And then the other question all comedians enjoy so much on Breakfast TV is, how do you generate your material? How do you get your ideas? Um, I think of them in my brain. How do you think of the stupid shit that someone's saying into the goddamn thing in your ear? You corporate drone fucking pinhead. That's never my answer. My answer is always, I look at life and then turn it upside down. I shake it till the candy comes out and then I pick up whatever tidbits are left on the floor. And then I have a small otter named Emil that comes to me in my dreams and whispers confidences in my ear. Greg, talk about Ava Gardner tomorrow. It'll really kill. If there's one thing the comedy crowd at Juice Perrier loves, it's Ava Gardner jokes. Uh, so she asked me, uh, you, she says to me, you're always, you're never afraid to uh, take on challenging uh, topics and material. And I honestly didn't know what to fucking say at that point. I was gobsmacked. I was like, yeah, I guess. You know, politics, whatever. 
I come from a country where we believe if everyone has a gun, we'll all be safe. I don't think there's anything you can say off the top of that. Uh, so they were very nice here. And there was a view of View Carré behind us. So it looked like you were in 16th century Canada, right? You know, it's the, the castle and whatnot. You look like, what was that Richard Gere movie where, with Julia Armand and, uh, 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 and, and he was uh, King Arthur and whatever? And uh, What was it? First night? No, it wasn't first. So I think it was first night, was it? Uh, I remember a Richard Gere joke from the era that Richard Gere had two emotions, and here they are. Where's my car? Oh, there it is. Um, <laughs> it's not my joke, but everybody called it that. So uh, the first night went okay. The next night, uh, wow, okay. So uh, I had to do a late night show with Ari Shafir, who's a lovely individual. I don't even know if Ari's here, but he was here before. In any case, he puts on a show called, I don't know what the fucking show's called. Something, this happened, or that might have happened, or something should have happened, or anything happened, or what's it called? This is not happening? Yes, it is right now. Watch. <laughs> Don't go metaphysical on me. This is happening. There's something happening here. What it is isn't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there telling me I've got to beware. I think it's time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. <laughs> There's battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Young people speak in their mind. They're getting so much resistance. From behind, I think it's time we stop. Hey, here we are. <laughs> it's a great song. Uh, and Stephen uh, Stills' greatest number, in my opinion. He'll probably say something off of Manassas. But I would say that one was. And my wife's theory, to come up with that once again, uh, that the, the, the groups that had the mellowest sound did the most fucking drugs. <laughs> Fleetwood Mac did more drugs than fucking Courtney Love has dropped. <laughs> All of their albums are mellow and groovy. Crosby, Stills, and Nash went, teach your children well. I remember my friend Forrest went to see them in Oakland in like 1978. And Crosby, Stills, and Nash came out, did the first set, and then David Crosby went at the end of the first set, we're going to go backstage and try to sober the fuck up a little bit. <laughs> you don't see Katy Perry saying that shit. They didn't wear microphones on their heads and fucking do dancing and shit. They are fucked up on coke and shit. Like, fucking, right. Stop. Hey! What's that sound? Going, there's a lizard over there. Crawling up my underwear. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. When we can remember the lyrics to Marrakesh Express or where Marrakesh is, we'll be back out to perform that play around. Till then, I suggest you go to the bathroom and do a bump. It was called uh, This Is Not Happening, and uh, well, I was on with some magnificent comedians. Uh, T.J. Miller, who's an absolutely scorching genius. Al Madrigal, who's from San Francisco, uh, and an old pal of mine. And uh, we were performing at a club called Cleopatra, uh, which is in the uh, uh, prostitution... Uh, it's the sexually transmitted disease district of Montreal. You can score heroin in that district. You can buy rock. Uh, you can have a, a sexual encounter behind a wall, if you like. Uh, you can talk to someone who has half a head. The other half of their head is smoked meat. Uh, it's, it's pretty wild. Uh, if you like meeting people who don't have all of their head, it's a great area to go to. And that's what I love about Montreal. It reminds me of San Francisco back in the day. It's just sleazy as can fucking be. Uh, and then there's a couple of fast food restaurants that you think, oh my God, what goes on in the restroom? You know, like, ooh, do not touch. Jesus Christ. I'd rather walk barefoot through a bubonic plague field than go into a fast food restaurant on the San Laurent area where Cleopatra was. The bathroom at Cleopatra and upstairs, an airless room where they keep the comics. We all went upstairs and there was fucking no air at all. I guess evidently the owner of Cleopatra hasn't sold. There's big redevelopment on both sides and they're putting up all these new brightly fucking lit corporate things where people can have a revenue flow, good time with video screens and fucking, you know, gigaws and shit like that and everyone can be on their phone and never relate to one another. And in the middle of that, there's a place with drag queen fucking waiters and, and like AIDS is on the menu and shit. <laughs> so we go upstairs, we repair to go confabulate as we do because we're wizards and uh, as the Wizard of Oz said and otherwise hobnob and uh, uh, there's no fucking air and I'm like, Jesus Christ, it's fucking Ilfe show, Ilfe Trey show and uh, TJ kicked the door open and I was like, I didn't know you could just fucking kick doors open. I wish I was young and remembered how bold one could be. And we went outside and got high, so it was fun. <laughs> they didn't. I don't want to include other people in my drug taking. 
Al Madrigal and TJ are employed by television. They did not get high. They looked on askance while I got high, and they raised one eyebrow in arch judgment of what I was doing. I want you to know that. I don't want NBC fucking calling me and shit. Well, you got that fucking dream to come true, didn't you, Greg? So I went back to, uh, oh, Jeremy showed up from the club and we went back to the wiggle room and opened it up and oh golly, uh, I think I went to bed at like 4, 4.30. All I remember is walking out onto San Laurent going, I'm in, a, I'm in a cab, I'm in a cab, I'm in a cab. And Jeremy put me in a fucking cab. And why does every cab at four in the morning playing this? Can no one play smooth jazz? It's four. I'm high. I can't tolerate that shit. I just sat in the back with my head banging against the window. I don't even know if I went to my hotel. I went to a hotel. So the next day I get up and I'm like, oh, Christ on a crutch on a cracker that the cat dragged in from fucking beyond Dante's eighth fucking circle. I gets back to the club at the wiggle room and they're like, you want it? Hey, the usual, Greg? After two nights, it's the usual. Tumbler of vodka with vodka in it? I'm like, I'll, I'll have a Coca-Cola. I haven't had a Coca-Cola since I was like 11 years old. Fucking sweet that shit is. I had a smoked meat sandwich and a Coca-Cola and I was revived as if by magic. And uh, then uh, that night, uh, of course, a, a small night of uh, sobriety, I, I went uh, to did the green room with uh, Paul Provenza and Troy Conrad. And by the way, if you haven't seen the green room or if you haven't attended a show of the set list or the green room, uh, or Troy, are you still here? Yeah. What, what's the other show? The, the Prompter? Prompter. Or oh, The Prompter. Uh, Troy Conrad and Paul Provenza are two people who are doing everything for comedy. Uh, they, they're, they're supporters of comedy. They, they, they bring in other comics from all over the world. And when I mean all over the world, I played for them in uh, Australia, Edinburgh, London, uh, New York, Montreal, uh, San Francisco, everywhere you could possibly, Los Angeles. Um, they really do go all over the world and seek out different people from every walk of comedy and put them on stage together. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful uh, uh, thing that they're doing. It's a very, um, how do I put this? It, as a comedian and you reach a certain age and the frost, uh, the permafrost settles around your heart and you realize, yeah, uh, that the, only the contact of human people in a situation like this is anything that alleviates the pain that lives inside. Uh, that, that they make my heart flutter like a cabbage moth beneath the waxing moon. And that once again, comedy can be free and that, that we can all say whatever we want and express our opinions and uh, be respected as comedians. And uh, so for that, uh, they are my heroes uh, in that regard. So I, I urge you, if you ever see Paul Provenza or Troy Conrad's name on anything, to go uh, see what they're doing because it's utterly valid. We had a very groovy discussion and it was with, what was Hassan's last? Last name Troy? Minaj. Hassan Minaj, who's from San Francisco, and uh, then you should know him, shouldn't you, Greg? I left there quite some time ago. Um, and uh, it was uh, TJ Miller and uh, the, the fantastic Will Anderson from Australia, and we uh, had a very heavy discussion about uh, you know content and comedy and uh, how, uh, how difficult it is for comics in the third world who... I get up here and glibly say AIDS is on the menu. If you get up in South Africa or India and say this type of thing, you're likely to have your fucking eyes poked out and be put into a burlap sack and hung upside down and stuffed with chilies for the rest of your fucking life. Uh, so the stakes are a little bit higher in those places. So your quietude doesn't bother me at all. One, my ego's huge and I already know that I've subsumed you. <laughs> Uh, and that was ma magnificent fun. So then the, the fourth night, uh, I came back here after the show. And this is the Riot Hyatt, right? And uh, they had, uh, I think it was, was it Comedy Central that night or one of the, one of the giant uh, comedy corporations that are so uh, invaluable in presenting comedy to uh, uh, f uh, rapey frat guys with baseball hats on. And uh, <laughs> they, uh, they, were, they had an open bar here. What do you mean by that, Greg? I mean, they paid for all the fucking drinks. There was 25,000 comedians here that night. In the, in the long storied, varied, variegated, fucking heinous, blackened history of humanity, there has never been a worse idea than giving comedians free alcohol <laughs> until the frosty fucking dawn. Uh, you, you run into people you, that you don't want to see, you run into people that you haven't seen, you run into club owners who go, I run a place called Fuckle Chucks in Kansas City, and you're like, I don't know kind of city, and that's all I can answer at that point, because my tongue had swollen up like a puff at her, 
from being burnt all night long by the ends of, of blunts. And so, and the, we'd really like it if you came and play our club. I'm like, I will. When my dead, desiccated corpse is resurrected in another lifetime, I'm sure to play your venue. <laughs> Call my people, make me an offer. So, who are your people? The village people. Call the Indian chief. He's in charge of most of it. The policeman does a lot of the business work. Uh, and then I ran into Robert Wall, who I believe is here today. There's Robert over there. Robert Wall and I had uh, a, a tremendous comedian and a, and a, and a wonderful cat. Uh, we uh, had a 30-minute a, a, a conversation about the movie Bull Durham, uh, which uh, Robert is in. And speaking of Bull Durham, uh, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, and this is dropping today and you're in Los Angeles, I'll be showing Bull Durham tonight at the Cine Family in Los Angeles on Fairfax Avenue in what used to be the Smoked Meat District, but is now the Baseball Cap and Tennis Shoe District of Los Angeles. Uh, and Bull Durham is, one of, is my favorite sports movie of all time by a long goddamn mile. And because of the verisimilitude that it smacks. Uh, it's absolutely real, uh, and Robert and I had a long philosophical discussion about it, and the, and the reason is, uh, most sports movies end with the clock ticking down and then them scoring a touchdown, or if it's a, a hockey movie, they score a goal at the end, unless it's Slapshot, which is the most awesome other movie of all fucking time, in which there's just swearing in the Hanson Brothers, and a guy comes out with a fucking mounty hat on, which is just fantastic, and a guy is actually allowed to play in a First Nations fucking outfit during a movie, which is just shockingly good. Um, Bull Durham is about failure, and that's what sports is about, and that's why we love sports, because however many teams are in the league that, of the team you root for, they don't win. When do they fucking win? Once in your lifetime, twice in your fucking lifetime, and that's what Bull Durham's all about. So uh, that was fantastic. And then you see Bobby Slayton, and Slayton will come up to you and go, I'm the smartest fucking man in the world. What the fuck's your problem? I got two fucking shows tonight. I think I'm doing the fucking Dirty Videos and the Nasty Show. What do you mean? You're going to be a fucking great movie. You're the real fucking stars. What do you mean? You're going to be after Bruce. Bruce, let me ask you something. What do you mean? You're going to wear a fucking suit off. Look at them. I'm just wondering what they want to I'm like, sorry? As a young comedian some 745 years ago, uh, I, I, uh, I learned at his teat, if you will, uh, Will Durst and Bobby Slayton were my unintentional mentors. Will Durst because of the craft. And when I say the craft, I mean the glamour. When I say the glamour, I mean the erudition. When I say the erudition, I mean the putting together of words and the keeping of material and the using it later. But Greg, you don't seem to do that. You just seem to hold a piece of paper in front of you and let your tongue go flatulent. In any case, I do at least know how to do it because of Will Durst and Bobby Slayton because of his unbelievable cocksure fucking attitude. He says the most horrible things to the audience and then stares them down. <laughs> and it's unbelievably important to be confident. Uh, every, every once in a while, a young comedian will say, when can I know my life? Because that's how they talk. They all have oh, a cleft palate and, and a hair lip. And they'll be like, I'm just starting. When can I know? And I'm like, confidence. The audience wants you to win. Don't you understand that? They've paid money. They're more uncomfortable than you are when it sucks balls. That's the God's fucking truth. Comics live to play another day. No matter how shitty... Hi, guys. No matter how shitty... Rich Voss and Bonnie McFarland, whose podcast is up next after this one, ladies and gentlemen. We, we name check everybody here. They're very fit. I saw them in their workout gear today while I was doing a rail upstairs. <laughs> I was smoking a rock out of a Quebecois hooker's ass this morning. <laughs> Bonnie was doing some fucking... Some press-ups, as the British call them. Very fit couple, very sexy. Uh, 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 in any case, yeah. So that's my philosophy. Uh, in any case, uh, uh, right. And then we did that. Uh, we talked about Robert Bull. Uh, uh, very briefly, we, we don't have loads of time left, but I wanted to get to a couple of people here swirling in the... I'm going to do a commercial first. We're going to talk about this. If you want to write me, it's at smartestofaspecialthing.com. That's if you want to ask a question. If you want to write me poisonally, fanmail4greg at gmail.com. Excuse me. And I do read them all. I haven't been answering them lately, but I fucking read every email that I get. Do you really, Greg? I do. I sit in my hotel room and I read them, and uh, then my eyes glaze over. <laughs> Bull Durham tonight at the Cine Family. Uh, the 31st through the 2nd will be at the Punchline in San Francisco. The podcast will be on the 31st. Come and visit us there. Then we'll be at the Gilded Balloon in Edinburgh. The 5th and the 19th, I'm doing a vodcast from the Gilded Balloon. We'll also be at the Utterbelly doing the Who's Line reunion show with Clive Anderson, Josie Lawrence, Mike McShane, Steve Frost, and Colin Mockery, ladies and gentlemen, and Richard Ronch as well. I'm officially in deep purple now. 
Let me make it more Canadian. I'm officially in Blue Rodeo now. I'm officially in the Stampeders. Sweet, sweet city woman. Uh, yeah, uh, it should be great fun. We'll be there for two weeks. I'll be at the Comedy Bar in Toronto on the 30th for a benefit there. We'll be doing uh, good nights in uh, Raleigh the 18th through the 20th of September. The Soho Theatre in London on the 19th. The Maui Comedy Festival. The 29th through the 2nd. Sacramento Punchline the 20th through the 22nd of November. Uh, and go on gregproops.com and you can buy my video. Greg Proops live at Moose and Franks for four ninety nine. Remember the show's free, and I really don't ask for money. And there's only a couple of is that Jeff Wells. No, who's that? Someone else. Never mind. All right. Uh, someone swirling in the heavens. We only have a little bit of time for the uh, uh, um, for uh, honoring those who have walked on, as the First Nations say. Uh, James Garner is swirling up in the heavens tonight. What a magnificent performer! What a wonderful human being. Uh, the New York Times called him a Ryan, handsome leading man who slid seamlessly between television and movies, but was best known as the amiable gambler in the 50s Western Maverick and the cranky sleuth Jim Rockford in the 70s series The Rockford Files. For those of you who are quite young, you may remember him from The Notebook. Uh, you may also remember him from the uh, Yaya Sisterhood, was it? Was that the name of that picture? With Maggie Smith and whatnot? I was doing a, uh, a press junket for uh, Breakfast TV in England, and I got to interview uh, James Garner and uh, um, Cock, not Maggie Smith wasn't there, um, Ellen Burstyn. And I don't know if you know who Ellen Burstyn is, but she, was, uh, she is a tremendous actress. She was in that superbly dark um, film, uh, Cock. Who directed The Wrestler? Aaron Darinovsky. Requiem for a Dream. Thank you, Robert. Uh, uh, she was in the movie Requiem for a Dream. That's how you might place her. If you're my age, you'll remember her from a superb picture that Martin Scorsese made in the 70s called Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore with uh, Chris Christopherson and Harvey Keitel. And, you know, she probably was about 68 when I met her. And, oh my God. <laughs> if we'd been alone in the room and I wasn't gay and married, I... <laughs> Would have been all over her like fucking plague on a rat. She was hot beyond fucking measure. Then James Garner came in, and uh, there's two uh, publicist types standing in the corner, right? You know, they've got the watches and the clipboards, and then. And they're always named Deborah. And. You have five minutes to interview everyone. It's a press junket, so you walk in, you sit in a chair, James Garner's sitting across from you and whatnot. And uh, I got to meet him, and I go, uh, do you know how, because I lived in England, do you know how popular The Great Escape is in, in London, right? Like, in England, every year on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, they show, I'm, I'm not explaining it to you guys. Remember, other people are listening in other places. People are listening in Arkansas, and if I go, the Boxing Day, they're like, Boxing Day? Do you collect them, or do you watch a match? Boxing Day is the day after Christmas. They almost always show The Great Escape or, or Kelly's Heroes or one of those awesome uh, 60s adventure films. And uh, although Charles Bronson is my favorite because he's in the triumvirate. He's in uh, 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 The Great Escape. He's also in The Dirty Dozen and he's in The Magnificent Seven. So if you're a man and you're my age, Charles Bronson really holds down the fucking fort. And as I've described on the show before, a lot of people in the crowd I can see are already drifting away like during the Ava Gardner portion. <laughs> Charles Bronson was born in a bituminous coal pit in Pennsylvania and was raised at the end of a fucking bag of salt. And his acting consisted of having a face that looked like a fist. So his acting was like a punch being thrown at you. This is what Charles Bronson would be like. Someone would go high and he'd go, I don't like you. James Garner, on the other hand, had that Oklahoma drawl, right? So in The Great Escape, he's a John, a Donald Pleasance. Uh, he looks after Donald Pleasance, who is that superb English actor who always played Faraday types and was a Blofeld in Live and Let Die. And uh, in any case, I meet James Garner, and uh, we talk about the movie, and that lasts a couple minutes. Well, you only get five minutes, right? So I go, do you know how much people love The Great Escape in England? He goes, well, I can't do James Garner. I'll do it just a bad... James Garner. Yeah, I do. You know, we went over there and we landed once in a plane in the, in the 60s and there was hundreds of people waiting on the tarmac for us just because he'd been in uh, The Great Escape. And then he goes, are you on a show called Whose Line Is It Anyway? Now I've got a boner, right? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? He knows who I am? It was like, he kind of vaguely knew. You're, the, you're not the black guy, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm the, I'm the other one. 
And he's like, my granddaughter loves that show. And I can see Deborah in the corner giving birth to a fucking cow. Just, you're talking about stuff that doesn't have anything to do with the product we're selling. For that, I will always love him. And the fact that he was a civil rights advocate and an anti-war person his entire life. He's in a movie called The uh, Americanization of Emily. And he had a monologue in that movie with Julie Andrews. And it's not, I wouldn't call it the most entertaining movie of all time, uh, but it was written by Patty Chayefsky, and the script is astounding. Um, He's a pacifist in the middle of World War II, right before D-Day. And James Coburn is a gung-ho officer and is desperate to get James Garner out on the field to show him that he should fight. And here's the monologue they quoted in the New York Times, and I thought this was superb. Um, I don't trust people who make bitter reflections about war. This is the boring preachy part. We're not going to talk about Gaza. We're not going to talk about the ISIS uh, invading Iraq. We're not going to talk about Syria. We're not going to talk about the plane being shot down in the Ukraine. We're not going to talk about Vladimir Putin or Hamas or any of the heinous nonsense that's going on in the goddamn world. I read the papers this morning and I wanted to take my own fucking life. There's nothing you can do about it in a Zen way other than to remember in your mind that war is unnecessary at all times, that it's only fought by people who can gain from war. The civilians who die in all of these conflicts never voted for war and never fucking want war, ever, 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 ever. I was going to go into a big lengthy description of what my take was on Gaza, but I realized that however impassioned, sincere, articulate, and unimaginably brilliant I am, (laughs) it could never, ever really cut to the crux of the matter. Uh, And the matter is this, if we were being shelled right now, our lives would be much different and you would have a different viewpoint on this. But as we are privileged and allowed to be in the first world, uh, let me just quote what Patty Chayefsky wrote and James Garner said in the movie. I don't trust people who make bitter generalizations, reflections about war, Mrs. Barham. It's always the generals with the bloodiest records who are the first to shout what a hell it is. And it's always the war widows who lead the Memorial Day parades. Um, And I think he felt that way his whole life. The other thing about him that I love was he didn't love show business. He looked at acting as a profession and that you were supposed to support what the writer wrote. And that when I see these actors on TV and they come on and go, it was really hard. I had to learn how to do pretend kung fu and wear a mustache. (laughs) Really? A PA brought you tea and you laid in a trailer and got a hand job. (laughs) Acting is so fucking easy. Fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you. If you're lucky enough to be paid to be an actor all the time, you should wake up every morning and blow God. you had to memorize some shit so what you had to wear a costume it's fucking fun it's like when you're five you put a hat on and you're like I have a general when people make it hard oh it's so hard I had to reach inside myself really to be a person you're playing a person right I mean I played a pod race announcer imagine how difficult that was for me I had to pretend I was from another planet and shit what are my givens your givens are you're getting paid and we have to finish. Uh, when NBC canceled, he had a show called Nichols. Garner was so incensed he had his character killed in the final episode. That was a show he did in 71. Mr. Garner disdained the pretend. And this is the other thing I love about the New York Times. Uh, when I pass away, and I won't get an obituary in the New York Times, but should I, I will be Mr. Proops for once. It'll be awesome. You're never just Greg. Uh, Mr. Garner disdained the pretentiousness of the acting profession. I'm a Methodist, but not as an actor. (laughs) I'm from the Spencer Tracy School. Be on time, know your words, hit your marks, and tell the truth. I don't have any theories about acting, and I don't think about how to do it, except that an actor shouldn't take himself too seriously and shouldn't try to make acting something it isn't. Acting is just common sense. It isn't hard if you put yourself aside and just do what the writer wrote. Now, having said that, when you watch James Garner... There's a feeling of joy that comes over you because of the ease with which he reads his lines, because of the insouciant flip-lip manner with which he delivers his bone mows. He is, as they say, a man men want to be friends with and a woman, uh, and a man, and a woman. <laughs> I turned into blur. Boys who like us, who like us, who like us. 
and a man with whom women would like to be with. And that's all you can ask from any individual, that they have the sex appeal, savoir-faire, verve, and elan, that we all want to join upon their party train. Uh, Mr. Garner, a lifelong Democrat, was active in uh, behalf of civil rights and environmental causes. He met his wife, Lois Clark, which is a fantastic name, and also an uh, exploration team at a presidential rally for uh, Adlai Stevenson. That's going out for nobody. Uh, Thank you. Uh, And there you go. So uh, James Garner is swirling in the heavens. Do we have any time, Carolyn? Not really. really. Maybe a minute or two? Okay. Uh, in any case, you'll see James Garner if you look into the night sky because he's dominating you up there with his uh, unbelievably sexy fucking demeanor. By the way, he smoked his whole life and after he had his heart attack, he took up smoking again. <laughs> That's what I call gumption. <laughs> he never cut out cream, as they say. One or two questions and then we'll fuck off into this good night. Caroline is uh, womaning the mic there. Does anyone have a question? Just raise your hand and she'll run over to you and then we'll blow out of here. Oh, you're right there. Huh? How about Paul in the front? Um, Not that I put... Oh, you don't want to use the mic? They keep saying that it'll work off the mic, but in my experience, it doesn't. Well, first, I want to thank you, uh, Greg, because in the years that I've been listening to your podcast, you've turned me into a much better feminist. Somebody who appreciates women much more. Uh, You open minds, and that's fantastic. How terribly kind of you. Uh, I don't want to get into... Too, too much political stuff. Uh, Good, because you don't have any goddamn time. <laughs> but of the three main lines of thought in dominant politics in the U.S., which are hatred, money, and greed, and That's religion, yeah. which of the three do you think is going to be first to fall and hopefully lead us to a better, more progressive world? Well, I think that uh, the people who dig their heels in and say they don't want gay marriage, they don't want abortion, they don't want everyone to have rights, they don't want women to be people, um, history will unprove them because I believe the next president of the United States is going to be a woman and I also believe that uh, things change whether you want them to or not. As I've said so many times on the show before, uh, if you told me in 1972 when Nixon was president that we were going to have lots of uh, women on the Supreme Court, that was not a possibility in those days. So I think time moves on and leaves those who would uh, want the past to be resurrected in the dust. Uh, I hope that clears that up for you. Speaking of feminism, I wanted to read a quote. Uh, A a woman named Meg Schultz sent me this today. It's from an Australian feminist named Dale Spender, and you can find her on dalespender.com, or uh, .au, is that that the Australian uh, suffix, .com? Uh, And this is what she said. Uh, It was a quote sent me today, uh, and I I thought it uh, it wrapped up everything I thought uh, very well, because there's lots of wars going on now, and uh, you have to understand that uh, the oppression of women is a reality word. At every moment... All the time, everywhere. Every woman in this room knows what I'm talking about because every woman in this room has been told to smile. Every woman in this room has had their ass grabbed. Every woman in this room has dealt with fucking men every goddamn day of their goddamn life. And you're the lucky ones because you don't live in India where you get fucking raped and lynched and set on fire on the way to use the goddamn bathroom or other countries where you're shelled or other terrible things fucking happen to you. So uh, just to put it in perspective for everyone, uh, thank you for the one person who tried to applaud. It makes the men uncomfortable, and that's my favorite part of the show. (laughs) But my dick and masturbation, aren't these topics for comedy that are endlessly funny? Isn't it a well that I can go back to time and time again? What about my genitalia? (laughs) Yes, your genitalia is so huge. (laughs) Men's dicks are like a Ming vase. We want you to compliment them and touch them gently, but don't break them. And don't ever go, oh, there's a crack in that one. Ew. Did that one come out of the kiln early? It's all bending to one side. Gross. Notice how the women laugh in their hands. One day women will not laugh into their hands. Uh, Meg Schultz sent me this. It's by Dale Spender. She wrote, Feminism has fought no wars. It has set up no concentration camps, starved no enemies, practiced no cruelties. Its battles have been for education, for the vote, for better working conditions, for safety on the streets, for childcare, for social welfare, for rape crisis centers, women's refugees, reforms in the law. If someone says, oh, I'm not a feminist, I ask, why? 
What's your problem? You have been the smartest crowd in the world. I have been the smartest man in the world. Thank you very much for coming out tonight. For every page that you turn to the side of page, for every bubble you're in, you're in cool Papa Bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're very U.S. motherfucking bonds. Good night, everybody. Peace.